Welcome to this, the first of our Christmas BMJ podcasts. We'll be doing four of these this year, based around rough themes. We'll be talking about how we got to great institutions, like the Geneva Convention, and why these seem to be being dismantled in 2016. We'll find out about the evidence base for caring. And finally, are we in a post-fact society, and why truth matters. But first, in an ideal world, policies would be evidence-based, but governments are made of humans, who have positions and ideologies and moral bases. In this podcast, Anthony Painter from the RSA will be talking about why the universal basic income might work and doesn't fit into normal ideological bases. And what's interesting about basic income is it has an enormous amount of support across the ideological spectrum, but it also has enormous opposition across the ideological spectrum. And writer and philosopher A.C. Grayling explains how economic arguments become moral crusades. The very first legal restrictions on things like opium and cocaine came in not to control their use, but to control their sale. So only uh, pharmacists were going to be allowed to sell them from that point onwards. Firstly, Anthony Painter is director of the Action and Research Centre at the RSA and author of the report Creative Citizen, Creative State, the principled and pragmatic case for a universal basic income. Anthony, you start your editorial with the story about the town of Dauphin in Canada, where they actually trialled a universal basic income. And I think the interesting thing about this is the that a change in government um, basically killed off something that looked like it might start to work. Yeah, and what what was really interesting is the um, the sort of roller coaster of politics during the 1970s in both the US and Canada. And actually, there's a whole series of experiments that were undertaken from the sort of early to mid 1970s, lasting until the the late 1970s. And interestingly enough, in the US case, um, the um, that the person who who put into place those experiments was actually Richard Nixon, believe it or not. He was assisted in the White House by um, by Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. So it just shows how you know history moves very slowly in 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 this world. But the interesting case was the Canadian one, which sort of bolted on its own experiment, um, and that was um, that was initiated by the Prime Minister at the time, who is the current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's father. Um, who was generally in favour um, of a major intervention as a sort of anti-poverty uh, measure and as an, an underpinning to, to work and life. And so they looked at um, a whole area experiment in, in Dauphin based around what we would now call a, a universal basic income um, in effect. But, but, but of course, you know, the, the political scene um, went on these sort of wild changes during the 1970s. And there was a whole sort of series of political controversies around these trials. And one of the, the key things that changed um, in the US initially was some data came out about family breakups related to the trials. Um, and actually, it turned out that the the data was um, not significant. It was a very small number of cases um, in a very defined uh, place. But that itself became politically controversial and became a sort of matter of Senate debate. And it's interesting, I think, that you talk about marriage there, because that leads us on a bit to our next question. Um, the sanctity of marriage is a cornerstone of conservative philosophy. Um, but from the other side, and I think I read somewhere about this this trial, um, it may have afforded women the ability to escape from a miserable marriage. 
Um, the point being that these things can be framed very differently depending on your ideological standpoint. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think your analysis is right. I mean, but part of one of the main purposes behind a basic income is to give people a greater sense of freedom and agency over their lives. And um, that includes giving the capability for people to get out of damaging situations um, and give them the means to do so. That can be a family situation. It can be a work um, situation. Um, it could be a corrosive relationship with the welfare state. And we've had many examples of that um, in recent times. Um, but welfare policy is so strongly linked to you know, an overall moral sensibility, which obviously then is linked to political um, ideology. So to have um, sort of robust scientific experiment that is politically sustainable is a fraught exercise. So we're kind of crazy asking for that, perhaps in the UK context. We hope to see a basic income pilot um, here in the in, in, in the future. Um, but, you know, it, it, you've got to think about how politics interacts with all the all, all these changes. And what's interesting about basic income is it has an enormous amount of support across the ideological spectrum but it also has enormous opposition across the ideological spectrum. So it's it's a very difficult policy to ground in one particular political viewpoint, which is one of the things that makes it so intriguing, because conservatives can find reasons to back a basic income and to oppose it, as can liberals, as can social democrats, socialists, so on and so forth, libertarians. Um, and that's why it, it really turns a lot of political discussion on, on its head, which is why I think we find it a very difficult subject to talk about, even though we can't help talking about it, because it's such an like, exciting proposition. And just leading on from that, you say that um, there's increasing interest in the universal basic income in your article. And from some surprising quarters, um, Silicon Valley tech billionaires. And they're not generally known for being behind big state-funded welfare schemes. So what's brought them to the table? I think there is a perceptible anxiety. Um, and... Of course, this is a particular moment, and, and these moments happen periodically where um, we suddenly have an anxiety over the impact of new technologies, um, particularly on, on the world of work. Not only that, of course, but, but particularly on the world of work. And, and for some cultural reason, we happen to be in one of those moments now. And I think there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley that are looking at a lot of the technological development, particularly around automation, um, AI, robotics, big data, that has the potential to change labor markets in quite a rapid sense. Now, you've seen a lot of the analysis around you know, the percent of jobs that can be automated, and you see the 47% figure and so on. And we, we know from history that's not going to be the reality. But equally, we know from history that big technological change distributes work, income, um, wealth in different ways. And there are losers in that process. And when you face a situation where you could have accelerated change and large numbers of particular losers, then you can see why there might be an anxiety around the future social contract. So I think that is what is, is driving it. If you want to be really cynical, you could say that in Silicon Valley, they're, one, they're worried about demand for their products. Um, I'm not sure that that's particularly what's, what's driving it. I think it's more an anxiety around the stability of the social contract as they perceive that there might be uh, rapid change. And whether that comes to fruition or not, I don't know. As it happens, I don't think that is the core argument for, for a basic income. But I think it's something that is worth, worth watching and considering in, in, in the discussion.
Yeah, sure. And and you sort of touch on it there, but the main criticism of this seems to be, uh, you know, beyond an ideological standpoint, um, but the criticism seems to be that there's some sort of dystopian future state um, where you have some split society, a few highly productive, highly paid elite people, and then this large idle population. Um, now, as you say, there's been a few experiments. Uh, have you seen anything there that suggests that this might be an actual possibility? Yeah, and, and if if I'm honest, it's a fear I have as well. And if there, if there, was, there was something that was filling me with a sense of trepidation around all, all this, although I am an advocate of, of, of basic income, um, it is precisely that. I think a version of basic income um, that was um, atomizing um, is probably the right word to use, that actually, you know, created a separateness and, you know, a concentration of wealth and power and then just enough um, sort of sustenance for others to, you know, live live a life of just pure detached, um, detached consumerism is probably a good way of describing it. I think that is a dystopian future. And I think advocates of, of basic income, anyone engaging in the basic income debate, whether they're advocates or not, have to think around, OK, what is the meaning of this? It can't just be a, a you know, a technocratic tax and redistribute and forget about it. I think we need to have a richer conversation about the type of lives we want to lead, the types of relationships we want to have with one another, the relationship we want to see between the citizen and the state, um, which I would argue is is can be particularly for those in poverty or out of work can be a corrosive relationship. Um, what is the type of relationship we think is the right uh, relationship? We have to talk about it when thinking about what our caring responsibilities might be, what we want from community, and then it becomes a um, sort of richer um, norm imbued conversation. So we're thinking about the um, institution of a basic income um, as something which will embody a set of values, not just a technical mechanism to compensate losers from technological change. And sort of conversely to that, you point out that there's a positive correlation between poverty and poor outcomes. Um, and you also talk about a cognitive bandwidth scarcity that comes from poverty that limits a person's ability to live their life to the full. So what do you actually mean by that? The field of vision narrows. Um, and once you're making decisions that are, you know, if you think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you think about the survival needs at the bottom of that, of that, of that pyramid, if you like, as your decisions are more geared towards meeting your survival needs, you make snap decisions in the moment that are short term. And, um, you know, the, whether they're in your long term interest or not isn't exactly clear. You're kind of acting more and more in the moment um, as um, the reality of making tough decisions in life is sort of um, bombarding you um, effectively. So the theory behind the basic income is that it gives you a base, a foundation, a bedrock of security that at least enables you to lever in some longer term decision making that might include not just taking the first job that comes along or the first source of income. You might delay that until something is more, more suitable is found. You might think about, OK, well, how can I, I learn and progress in my career? You might start thinking about, OK, I know that I've got this, you know, albeit what might be relatively small amount of secure income, but yeah, enough to sustain yourself on for a period of time. How can I use that in a way that might actually be in my longer term interest, not just how on earth can I meet 
what's been expected me of the welfare state because it's quite interventionist um, in in its in, in its current form, and the need to make ends meet um, in another form, and then you start to make better decisions about your health, your family life, and so on. That's that's the theory behind it, and this is not just uh, an aspect of insecurity, uh, sorry, of, of inequality, um, as has been discussed previously. It's also about insecurity. And I think the two interact in very interesting ways. As you say, this is all a theory because as yet, as a human race, we haven't actually experienced a society where everyone's basic needs have been provided for in that way. Um, so kind of philosophically, what would that do to people, to our society? Um, but evidently, uh, as you back the idea that you think the balance comes down on the side of giving it a go. Yes, I think so. Although I, I think we have to, you know, approach it in a very experimental way with, as I say, this 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 rich societal conversation um, alongside it. And I think you, you phrased the question very well. It, it, it is starting to shift to a different type of society, which is a very big ask, um, of course, and, and none of this is easy. I think that the, the technical shift from the current tax and benefit system, because it's not just a welfare system, basic income, it's a whole system of tax and benefits. Um, the technical shift actually is a relatively simple step to make, um, peculiarly. And we've, you know, we've, we've crunched the numbers and we think you can probably get to, you know, a, a decent enough system for the cost of about 1% of GDP, which is about, say, £18 billion in current money, which sounds like a lot of money. But when you put that alongside the changes that have been made, say, to personal allowances in the last five years, which is of that quantum, or cuts of corporation tax, which is of that quantum, or the increase in tax credit, you know, it's it's a sort of the sort of shift that is quite common um, in our tax and benefit system if if you're if you're determined to do it. So the, the technical shift is absolutely doable. The the moral, social, political shift is a bit much bigger ask. And I think having an experimental disposition towards this while having an open dialogue in and around it ultimately is the is you know what what we call the theory of change that 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 might be the one um that that could accommodate people's anxieties around a change of this nature anthony to wrap up you said that there are some experiments going on where should we keep an eye out for for what's going on with these um, definitely Finland, um, and that's a, a national government um, experiment which will be starting uh, next year, um, and it'll be focusing on those out of work. So it's a particular, um, it's a particular situation rather than a particular um, area that, that that experiment will be will be locked in on. Although there may be further experiments the year after and the year after that. Keep an eye on Canada. Um, it's very likely that there will be um, a basic income experiment in Ontario. And in fact, um, the experiment that I reference in the in the op-ed in Dauphin, the people in and around that are advising Ontario and the national government um, right. uh, around that experiment. So keep a close eye there. Um, I would keep a close eye on the Netherlands. And there's a whole series of experiments that a variety of Dutch cities um, are lobbying their government to enable them to make. Now, these aren't strictly basic income uh, experiments, but they do experiment with some uh, notion of unconditional cash payments in, in some of them. So it will be some interesting results. And it's, it's about building a rich data set. There's a lot of experiments that are going on in um, the developing world. Um, there is a 10-year um, experiment which is about to begin, I believe, in Kenya. 
And that's funded by an organization called Give Directly, where people donate to Give Directly and they use that money to give cash payments um, over time. And they have a very tight evaluation, scientific approach um, to understanding the results of that. So keep an eye on that. Um, and, you know, there will be more popping up. And, you know, we you know, in the UK and um, there are one or two cities that are starting to volunteer to have basic income pilots. Uh, Five Council has backed it and um, Glasgow City Council are looking at it. Um, and so um, we're starting to get some interest in the UK as well. And I think our ambition would be to see a, a basic income pilot in, in the UK in the next sort of five, six years ago, or five, five, six years or so. And Anthony's article. A Universal Basic Income, The Answer to Poverty, Insecurity and Health Inequality is now available on thebmj.com. Now, if universal basic income is being experimented with, is it time for drug policies to be too? In an editorial earlier this year, the BMJ called for this, saying that the war on drugs had failed and doctors should demand reform. In this Christmas edition, Professor Anthony Grayling, philosopher and master of New College of the Humanities, has written about the morality of taking drugs, or is that the ethics? Navdarit Lada, analysis editor for the BMJ, finds out. So, Professor Grayling, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it's just a great opportunity to talk about the article that is now online. Um, in the article, you argue that as long as others are not harmed, there's no moral grounds for restricting the use of um, non-medical drugs such as cannabis or heroin um, any more than things like alcohol or sugar. Um, But while the difference between putting sugar in one's tea or cannabis in one's cake is not moral, there may be an ethical distinction. Um, Can you talk us through those two points? Yes, well, the concept of ethics is a much broader concept, actually, than that of morals. Uh, As you can see from the origin of the word, it comes from an ancient Greek word, ethos, which means character. So it's about what kind of person you are, how you live your life, the choices you make, the values that shape and color your life. Whereas the um, word uh, morality comes from, uh, actually, from Cicero, when he was trying to interpret some Greek philosophy into the Latin idiom. And he chose a a word which uh, has its etymology in um, a term mos mores, which means customs or etiquette. So that distinction, although it's quite a fine one, works out like this, that moral questions are questions about our obligations and duties to one another. Ethical questions include those, of course, but are much, much more general because they really, really are about how you choose to live. So it's kind of overlaid with your your values and your own your own sense of, as you say, how you wish to live. That's right, and and that's why it uh, impacts on this question about uh, drug use. Indeed, anything at all that uh, relates to personal choices in in life, as you pointed out there, the one great constraint on all our choices, whether or not we decide to legislate about them or to educate uh, with respect to them, is whether or not the impact that they have on other people is is very deleterious. So we restrict the um, use of alcohol uh, so that uh, people don't drive under the influence of alcohol. Um, of course, people can abuse alcohol and become very ill as a result and do terrible things under the influence of alcohol. But we try to restrain that by putting prohibitions around it and age limits on it. 
But otherwise, we think that the consumption of alcohol is a, a matter of personal choice. And whether somebody has a glass of wine at dinner is really not a moral matter. But it is, of course, an ethical one because the person is choosing an appurtenance of life, an aesthetic dimension of life that matters to them. And that is why we need this distinction between what's ethical and what's legal, what's a proper subject for legal action. Right. And and where did that sort of difference come from? Why do we look at drugs such as heroin, cannabis, cocaine differently to alcohol, caffeine, sugar? Well, it's an interesting story, actually, very briefly. Um, of course, none of these substances were prohibited by law until quite late on, back in the second half of the 19th century. The very first legal restrictions on things like opium and cocaine came in not to control their use, but to control their sale. So only uh, pharmacists were going to be allowed to sell them from that point onwards. And really, the first prohibitions uh, against drug use, heroin was developed in the 1890s out of opium, um, and people started using uh, heroin, opium, cocaine in the First World War. Troops, trenches, the troops were using them in the trenches, and the result was that the army cracked down on their use, and then general laws were passed prohibiting them. This was the result of a very successful long-drawn campaign through the 19th century by evangelical uh, religious groups wanting to ban all forms of intoxicants, including alcohol. And they had their big success in America in the 1920s with prohibition. And as we've all seen, and that is a lesson that humanity does very, very well to learn, that if you prohibit something like alcohol, you create huge problems. You drive it underground, you uh, promote abuse of it, you put it into the hands of criminals, and you create a massive criminal industry, as happened in the United States. And so when alcohol was decriminalized, all those other substances remained prohibited and, of course, have remained in the hands of criminals and have turned millions of, of uh, otherwise innocent people who use these things recreationally into criminals. So do we have those evangelical groups to thank for the fact that what was originally a sort of economic reasoning, if you like, became a, a moral one? Yes, I think we do. Uh, and uh, there remains a great deal of moral opprobrium directed at people who use substances other than the legal ones, other than nicotine and alcohol, which are every bit as dangerous and not indeed in some cases more dangerous than some of the prohibited substances. Mm. And you describe in the article how conservative moral attitudes are particularly fruitful in causing social problems as well. They're very, very fruitful in causing social problems because, of course, as I say, they drive all this underground and into the hands of crime. Now, um, it, it seems to me that, that the um, abuse of drugs, or, or even indeed, if we take a step back, even the use of, of uh, currently illegal substances is a matter for um, education and, uh, when it gets out of hand, medicine to address um, I, I personally, out of sheer timidity rather than anything else, have never used an illegal substance because, you know, what, what passes for my brain, I'm rather keen to try to protect it from too much uh, hammering. And so, so I've never myself uh, taken it. And I've always felt that people who, who do take it or even be, indeed become reliant on it for their highs in life uh, are missing out. I mean, there are so many wonderful things, music, nature, literature, learning, blah, blah. You know, why, why do we go for those things to get our highs? Um, so it's really a matter of, of education, of pointing out to people that uh, in, to rely on pharmacology for your satisfactions in life is a pretty poor choice, really. But it is not a choice that should be legally prohibited 
for the, for the two reasons. One we've discussed already, that it makes things worse, drives it underground and so on. But the second reason is that we actually have no right to interfere in the private lives and private choices of people unless those choices are going to harm others. That's the only ground we can have. And this has been famously and eloquently put by John Stuart Mill in his wonderful essay, on liberty, where he talks about the great importance of individual choice, individual autonomy in these matters, not least because the great diversity of human nature and human experience really benefits from the fact that people can experiment a bit in different ways of living and uh, choosing different courses of life, providing always providing that they don't grossly harm others. Mm. Well, that's that's interesting, and it brings us on to the sort of modern war on drugs, if you like, where we think that, um, was it Nixon who first kind of was a big proponent of that? Or at least there are sort of taped conversations of his that suggest that he believed that there, that, that war was a, a moral issue. But you have, um, that was all kind of mixed in with his own values. And I think you could see that there is this conflation between what an individual wants or sees as being right and... Um, and the sort of moral argument, which in his case was probably protection of a society that he believed was right in his mind. Um, do you think Do you think that's been an issue in the way we've approached drugs at all? It's, it's an issue in every matter where um, moralising attitudes um, really begin to uh, affect public policy decisions in ways that are counterproductive. So if, if we just look at what a moralist is, a moralist is a person who says... I don't like it, therefore you mustn't do it. I don't like it, therefore you mustn't see it, and so on. An absolute paradigm is Mrs. Mary Whitehouse, and some people listening to this may remember her, uh, the most unfortunate woman in the world in the sense that she she had no off button on her television set, so she was obliged to watch all sorts of things she didn't like uh, and didn't want anybody else to see them. And this is paradigmatic of, of people who, who, who take a view and want to impose it on, on other people. In the social debate in the in the debate we have with ourselves as a society about what the limits of acceptable behavior are the primary and driving motivation ought always to be that we want to protect individuals from being harmed by others we want to enhance the uh, uh, the public good and in uh, the enhancing of the public good is the question of allowing people the autonomy and space to make uh, individual choices. Who are you going to fall in love with? Who are you going to marry? What kind of career are you going to try to pursue? What are you going to read? What, you know, entertainments? Always under that harm principle, as Mill called it, not doing harm. And and therefore, to to say, to you know, to poke into people's leisure time and their leisure activities, or to be in the bedroom watching what people get up to and saying, no, you're not allowed to do that and you're only allowed to do this is a gross invasion of privacy and autonomy. And I think this is the, the really key issue because it's a civil liberties issue. As you described with um, drugs, how initially what was an, arg- an economic argument for prohibition became um, a, a moral a moral one. Do, do we see parallels with that with things like our approach to people on welfare benefits, um, asylum seekers, that sort of thing? Well, in the case of people who are on welfare, uh, again, there's a a long history here uh, of a a kind of tension, a tug of war between, on the one hand, 
people trying to be helpful and supportive to people who've fallen on hard times. Uh, you know, <clears throat> 400 years ago when the enclosures started in England, for example, um, scores, hundreds, thousands of people were turned off the land with no resources at all, and they depended upon charity. And when the um, uh, powers that be began to look into this a little bit, they began to think, well, you know, Plenty of people among these must be coasting along. They're riding on the back of this. They don't have to work. We're just giving them handouts. So let's make it tougher. Let's got to make it uncomfortable to be on benefits. And that generated an attitude. Now, that, that was an economic argument. And that generated an attitude towards uh, the poor from being objects of pity and compassion and desire to help them to them being scroungers and uh, failures. You know, people look down their noses at the poor as if being poor were a crime. And unfortunately, that attitude has stayed with us. So we think of uh, people on welfare and we see them smoking their cigarettes and watching television and we think, look at that, you know, really. Whereas the vast majority of people would much, much prefer to have the self-respect of being in a job and the, um, the, the, the backbone to life that you know, having a regular uh, uh, job gives you. I mean, one of the most appalling things for people is to have worked for many years and then to lose their job and to be set adrift and to become reliant on, on welfare. So the vast majority of people don't like welfare, and it is a price worth paying to be a civilized and sympathetic society, that there will be some scroungers. Always be going to be people who play any system, but the great majority of people really benefit from it. So it, the, you, you, the answer to your question really is that, um, yes, economic arguments very easily tip over into uh, something that moralists want to use as a stick to beat people with. And we should be rather careful about that. And we should always think about um, whether or not straightforward pragmatic reasons for doing something can be detached from the uh, opprobrium or the contempt or the whatever of people who who uh, take a view that anybody who needs help is yeah well uh, well i suppose are things changing we were just discussing earlier about how um the sort of paradigm shifts that kuhn talks about and how the changes that are related to scientific thought where a weight of evidence builds up and eventually you see a prevailing sort of view overturned because the the weight of evidence shifts shifts that so much and it seems as if we're we're heading in that direction with the issue of of the use of drugs uh, what do you think I think we are. I mean, we've seen a number of states in the United States of America lifting restrictions on the use of marijuana, for example, not just for medical um, purposes. You know, small private use quantities are now decriminalized. And so this is a a straw in the wind. We've seen very senior policemen here in the UK saying the waste of police time and resources and the waste of money and pursuing people, again, with small quantities of, of substances, using them recreationally, uh, is, is a very, very misplaced use of resources. But it's also the case that, um, that there is evidence coming out of, a, of some studies that suggest that what's, what's called substance abuse, so let's just call it substance use, for example, heroin addicts. If, if heroin addicts can get a, a safe uh, standardized regular supply of their substance, clean needles, um, if they don't have to engage in criminal activity to get the money to buy these things, if they if they don't suffer um, you know uh, um, health deficits as a result of being in very poor circumstances otherwise, then it looks as though their condition their addiction can be managed. 
even to the degree, in fact, that they might be able to hold down a job or look after their kids and so on. And there does seem there's also some evidence that um, that there is a kind of time limit to this. If if in other ways their health doesn't deteriorate or they overdose because they don't get a standard supply of their dose, uh, it may be that after a certain period, I think the number that's been kicked around is 10 to 12 years, they start to you know have a chance of coming off it. Uh, and there have been some trials of this. Uh, now, I can't cite all the top of my head because I don't have the documents in front of me where these, these trials have happened. But uh, it would be very interesting to look into the nature of um, uh, substance use and abuse in parallel with looking into the use and abuse of alcohol. There will always be margins, penumbra, you know, people who overdo it and, and uh, troubles that uh, result. But... Uh, um, Trying to think of a way of managing this, either through education, as I say, through social restraint, through uh, education, through medical means, rather than through legal means, would be a much, much more constructive way of doing it. Great. Well, for a very thought-provoking article and thought-provoking conversation, thank you, Professor Grayling, for joining us. Real pleasure. And that article, Morality and Non-Medical Drug Use, is now online too, and in your print edition, which should hit the mat tomorrow morning. As I said, we're doing four of these Christmas podcasts over the next week. Still to come are War, Caring and Truth. If you haven't yet subscribed, do that on iTunes so you don't miss out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>